A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky this letter to Titus and Lord Father you have given Titus a heavy task Lord this call to be a faithful pastor and a faithful leader a faithful believer in a in a world where Lord the enemy was trying to annihilate the church Lord and not in the way that we typically see but Father from the sin within it Lord, it was abundant. And so, Lord, we ask that tonight you would reveal to us how we could, as believers, draw closer to you individually so that, Lord, we wouldn't be troublesome to one another. But, Lord, you would also teach us how we could abide closer together in fellowship so that, Lord, we could be um, united as we strive together for our future hope, Lord, as we um, dearly look forward to your coming. Um, or that we would be called home and taken from this place. And so, Father, we ask all this in your name. Amen. All right. So, we are in the book of Titus. Um, It is definitely one of Paul's shorter letters, I believe, close to his shortest. Let me, I take that back. The next one is. So, next week, we'll see Paul's shortest to Philemon. Um, But, as we get into Titus, this is another one of the pastoral epistles. And as we get into these, I always want to give you guys this reminder as well. This is a pastoral epistle. While this is a letter written to the leaders of the church, Paul has made made it abundantly clear that while this is a call for the leaders, there's really nobody within the church that shouldn't be striving for this kind of behavior, for this kind of etiquette, for this kind of behavior at home, that you're to be leaders of men no matter where you are within the church, but those who are leaders in the church are held to a truer standard of it. And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus. And Titus is somebody who has been a comfort and an encouragement to Paul in the past. Um, He affirms Titus's salvation by faith and not legalism, other sections in Scripture. Actually, if you're taking notes, I'm going to read Galatians 2, 1 through 5. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so (coughs) Titus has been along in ministry with Paul through many things. In another section we'll read in a second, we'll see how he's specifically a comfort to him but Paul we believe or not Paul Titus was brought to salvation by one of Paul's missionary journeys we're not really sure which one it was but it's safe to assume that because right here in verse one and actually we can read this aloud it says Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promises before the ages again, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And so here in this opening, we see Paul use a title for Titus that he also uses with Timothy, who was also a convert in his ministry. And he calls Titus his child, which gives us the 
the insight that they have an intimate relationship in salvation and in discipleship, which leads us to believe that Titus, like Timothy, was converted by, in his preaching. His name, Titus, means honorable. And it's a fitting name because what Paul is going to specifically task Titus and the leaders of Crete to be is, in fact, that honorable. He's a Gentile convert, as we just read in Galatians, a Gentile convert who was not saved by works, but saved by faith. And in this, as we see he's ministered with Paul for some time, we see that he is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament completely and nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians alone. And so we spoke a moment ago that he was a comfort to Paul. In 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 7, it reads, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. And so we speak about these faithful men of God oftentimes in the New Testament, but Titus, I don't believe, is one who gets the credit he deserves. Is there are not many men that we see bring comfort to Paul in his ministry? But not only was he a comfort to Paul, but he was a comfort to those that he was ministering to and delivered a good message of a faithful church. And now, through all this ministry, Paul has tasked him with leading the churches on Crete. Now, where is Crete? Crete is the largest of the Greek islands, at least as we know today. Um, geographically, it's cut off from most places, and it's a little hard to arrive at, at least at this time especially. And it's a difficult island of extremely difficult people. I don't know how many of us would even use this word today, but there is a not-so-kind reference to those people of Crete. You would be called a Cretan. And if you were called a Cretan, it's from the Greek word kerizo, which means a liar. There's the people of Crete were, knowing of be, of, were known for having horrible reputations for being deceivers, liars, manipulators. Um, many of them, not many of them, but a good portion of them were mercenary soldiers on the island or hitmen. And so <clears throat> this was a really rough group of folks here in Crete that Titus has been tasked to oversee. And so, as we look at Crete, and if you're going to go home and study, and I encourage you to do so, if you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how in the world did this church start? We can speculate a few different things. This church very well could have been planted by Paul on one of his missionary journeys. Um, I was going through some other commentaries, and I think the one that I, I agree with the most is Acts pretty much says this is how it started. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church birth. And as um, we see the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, we see the disciples begin speaking in tongues and speaking in all the languages of the people that were there. And of the people that were there were the people of Crete. And so if you're looking at Acts chapter 2, 5 through 13, it reads, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking and said, They are filled with new wine. And as we look at church history, we see that there, hundreds of people came to Christ in this moment, and they went to their homes and began planting churches. And so it's safe to assume some kind of church made it home from this moment of conversion in the book of Acts. And so that lands us here in Titus. This is who he is being tasked to lead over. Now, as we look at this, we're going to start off in chapter 1 and pick up in verse 5. But as we look at an outline for the book, it's three short chapters. But chapter 1, we see order in leadership. In chapter 2, we see order in discipleship. And in chapter 3, we see order in stewardship. And so, if you guys are in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, would you say amen? It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So, <clears throat> a heavy chapter 1, as, as Titus is specifically told, this is why I have you here. And so if you're going to have a singular key verse, like what the book is about, it's verse 5 in chapter 1. Titus, this is why I left you in Crete that you may put what remained into order. And so chapter 1, we see order and leadership. And right here in the beginning, and actually, I I liked this comment before we move on. In verse 4, if you're reading in the ESV like I am, it says, grace and peace from God the Father, Jesus Christ our Savior. If you're reading another translation, it may read grace, mercy, and peace. Now, in Paul's other letters, he actually doesn't open up with three of these. He only opens up with two. But specifically to Titus and Timothy, he adds grace, mercy, and peace. The fact that the leaders of the church might need an extra dose of God's good grace upon their life. And here in five, we see why. That I need you to put into order what is broken. So this idea set in order, the Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it means to align or to set something back into a broken place. And so Titus is not only asked to pastor this church, and as we've spoken about in previous weeks, is that there are many pastors who like to lean one way or the other, that they might even be completely given to teaching and teaching only, But as we look at Titus, it brings us back to the truth that the role of the pastor, the role of the elder or the deacon or the overseer or the bishop, sorry, not deacon, is actually quite extensive. 
And here he says, I've brought you here because this church is broken. It's falling apart. Their sin is rotting it from within. I need you to set it back in place. Similar to a broken bone, it is askew or broken apart. You need to set everything back in order that it might heal and do well. Titus, your first task is to set leaders in place, elders in every town that they would be able to teach and rebuke those who are there. And what's interesting, and I actually didn't have this in here, is that the leadership is not easy, especially when you're dealing in ministry. As we look at the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, is that it implies that leaders are supposed to purposefully insert themselves within their realm of responsibility, I would add, to make sure the people of the church understand what it is that God has called them to in holy living. It is not the pastor's responsibility to turn a blind eye to the wicked behavior of those who are sitting within their congregation, but to point out to them that they are obligated, as they call themselves believers, to, with every aspect of their lives, hold true to the faith, even when it is most difficult even when it is most inconvenient, and to not latch on to things that are unbeneficial for their faith, but to stay focused on the things that are true. If any of you have ever seen or had a broken bone, I know shin splints are probably the one that come most to mind, is if you don't tend to the splints, these small fractures that are happening within the shin, you will eventually just get to a break. And so here, this church in Crete had ignored the small fractures that were happening within the church, and there is severe breakage in the congregations and in the church. And now they have to go through the hard work of putting everything back into place. This is going to be a bumpy ride. As we have to remember that as believers, as leaders, and this is not just the leader's responsibility, is that while we're called to be peacemakers... You are not a peacemaker if you reside in a place of peace at all times. You are a peacemaker when you are in a chaotic situation and you bring peace to it. Being a peacemaker means you're applying something to a space that it does not currently already exist. And so for the Christian, as we're called to be peacemakers, that means we are automatically not called to turn a blind eye to chaos, but as the Lord would lead us, speak love and truth, especially to the brothers, that they would draw closer to the Lord. And here, this is what they're asked to do. And so how does he do it? First, I need you, Titus, to install good leadership in the church. And so in verse 6, it says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then he continues on, but we're going to pause right there. He leads with what a description of a good leader is. And, you know, no, we're going to go ahead and read through because I don't want to skip over anything. It says, this overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. The things he cannot be. He cannot be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that, why? So that he would be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's the reason why they must be all of those things. And so here we see the, the task with appointing elders and bishops. As we look other places in Scripture, you might even find the word pastor. These three words are the same thing. They're just different descriptions for the same role. They are synonyms. One describes a person, one describes a function, one describes a gift, as Skip Heitzig would describe in his commentary. Is that, but still, all of them are the roles of the leaders of the church. An elder, per this description, is an older man, somebody who is seasoned, and it would describe the office of the church. Spiritually speaking, an elder doesn't need to literally be an old man, but it needs to be somebody who is wise beyond their years. And if you're older, you might be wise according to your years. I don't know, but that's up for debate. A bishop, 
This is somebody who is leading by function, that they are the overseer. The pastor is the one who feeds the flock. Again, all of these roles accomplish the same task. But leadership is reserved for those with integrity. And as we see here, Titus is going to have to be able to identify who these men are, which, will be, which brings us back to the reminder that we cannot lay hands on people quickly to be the overseers of the church. Is that these things are identified in time. Notice here in verse 6 again, this person has to be above reproach. The husband of one wife and his children believers are not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. These are not things that you can identify in a man within a few weeks, but things that take time, let alone the rest of the list that exists here. And notice, <coughs> these are qualifications for the heads of the church. And this is something that we see people argue about within the church all the time where they set standards on every single servant in the church when they're not leaders. Is Leaders do have to bear the responsibility of allowing somebody to serve in a place so that they can identify if they are a faithful man or woman of God. Is I want to remind you guys is that there are going to be people who serve in the church and there are going to be people who serve in this church who we allow to serve in a space so that we can in fact see if they are a faithful man and woman of the church. Not everybody who you see in church who serves, not everybody who raises their hands on the worship team is going to be qualified to be an elder or pastor or leader within the space. But we do have to provide places so that we can see whether they are people of integrity according to the word. And then if not, we have opportunities to disciple and to lead and to rebuke and bring people back to the Lord so that one day they could be. Is one mistake that we make oftentimes when we go to a church is we try to apply these standards to every single servant that exists from the front door to the back door when we forget that a lot of the people serving haven't arrived here yet, but they're being sanctified day by day, just like the other leaders are. But they're new in the faith and they're learning what it is to be this kind of believer. Be gracious and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another instead of tearing one another down in gossip. Is that as we strive together, if we see a brother or sister who's serving in the church in any capacity and we see they're not here, Let's speak to them in love and pray over them so that we would all be able to be, so that this would be able to be said of us. But I would remind you again, this standard exists for the heads of the church. This standard can't be applied to every single servant, but every single servant is striving that this would be said of them. Are you guys tracking with me on that? Is if you're a new believer and you wonder if you're qualified to serve and you come across the book of the books of Timothy and Titus. And you read this and you're like, man, I'm certainly not that. You're right. But you know what? If you, want to serve the, if you want to serve God in some capacity right now while you are being sanctified and you are being washed by the Word and you're learning what it is to be a believer, we would love to serve with you. And we'd love to teach you what that looks like. And we'd love you to tell us if we're missing the mark. That's the point of the church so that we all strive together as iron sharpens iron, strive towards heaven together. And so here, this is a standard that's set, and I love this verse, this section in verse 6, and his children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, if you have a different version again, you're not going to see believing children, but you're going to see the word faithful children. This is a Greek word, pistos, which means that they are to be objectively faithful, trustworthy, and possibly believers. And the reason I want to bring that up is that no man can save their own children. Is that there are many faithful men in the church who pray that their children would be saved. But what Paul is encouraging Titus to look for is men who are leading their house well, well enough that their children would even be faithful to say that their father and mother are leading the house well. While they may not be believers, they at least trust their parents to be caring for them there. And so, I again remind you is that 
there are some who we have great and loving children, but we are praying for their salvation just like you are. We can't control a person's salvation. We pray and hope just like you. But typically, the attitudes of our children are, are a direct reflection of the kind of men and women we are at home as well. And so Titus, pay attention to their wives. Pay attention to their children. They might put a face on for you here, but their character is clearly seen through the character of their family. Are they who they claim to be at all times? And here he goes on in verse 10, this next task. If I could find 10, I've marked my Bible up too much. I might have covered it. Okay, 10. For there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Titus, you are not only tasked to find faithful leaders to lead well, but you are also tasked to approach the false teachers within the church. To not avoid confrontation, but to come at them head on and make sure they understand that they're teaching a false gospel. And if they refuse to relent in their teaching and in their leading, you remove them from the church and have nothing to do with them. We see more specific details later on that specific point. But then he wraps up this first admonishment in 2 verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So Titus, and we see a very similar call here that he would remind Timothy over and over and over again. Brother, you focus on the Word of God. You teach the Word. And you make sure that those who are listening understand and abide by the Word. And these things will pan out. That when you go and you rebuke and you exhort and pray for, that you make sure that you're speaking from the Word of God and, you're not, and not your own opinion that you're walking according to it so that when you rebuke others, they would see that you are in fact living according to the Word. Stay attached to the Word wholeheartedly. And then in chapter 2, we see a more distinct turn to order in discipleship. And in verse 2, we see him begin to list out the order of what discipleship looks like within the church. So Titus 2, verse 2, it says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that any opportunity may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so in this section, we see similarly in other, in other places of Paul's writing that we are called to serve one another, to be submitted to one another, and to disciple one another. Now, it's <clears throat> I had this note taken down, but I found some commentaries that hit the same thing, but I think it's something that's worth noting is Notice the lack of specialized ministries within this church. And I'm not saying specialized ministries aren't a bad thing. In particular, we just spoke about youth ministry and young adults ministries. Is that they can be good as we focus on a specific thing. However, if we focus too much on isolating all of these groups like they need some kind of special attention we can overlook one of the major calls of the church is that everybody is supposed to be discipling somebody else within it. I remember when I first arrived at this church, I had a, a conversation with an older brother. And he would look around the room as we had some younger brothers start attending men's study. He's like, I just don't have anything in common with them. I can't hold a conversation. And younger men, I've heard the same thing as we talk about the older men in the room. 
Notice I'm slanting myself towards the younger men again. I'm clinging on, y'all. But we can say the same thing. It's like, I don't know what I have in common with them. Well, as we look at the letter in Titus, is that Paul doesn't necessarily care whether you have something in common with one another. But younger men, you look to the faithful older men so that they can teach you how to abide faithfully in the Word. Older men, you're right. When you look at them, they're doing dumb stuff. But honestly, they're just doing the 2023 version of the dumb stuff you did in the 50s. Throwing you way under the bus on that one. But anyways, it doesn't matter whether we relate to them or have very much common ground because the most important and only important common ground that we have is Christ. Is that we're supposed to take time, no matter what the age gap is, to bring one another to the Word, to make sure that we are abiding and caring. As a young man is learning to love his wife as Christ loves the church, it would be good for that young man to hear an older man's opinion on how they can do that. As younger wives are looking at their husbands and they're like, I can't believe I signed up for a lifetime commitment with this knucklehead. It'd be good for the older wives to say, I totally get it. Here's how you can honor and love him now. We're really good at dividing the church according to ages, according to what we think their needs are. But if according, according to the Word, if it's true, and we know the Word is true, the only thing that is necessary is Christ and His Word. Is that, yes, it's great that we have a youth night, and it's great that we have a young adults night, but if we do those, we cannot abandon our call to minister to one another. Every day that you live is another day of testimony that's beneficial for somebody else who doesn't have that testimony yet. And so if you're in the younger group here tonight, I would ask, who are you allowing that is older than you to disciple you in the Word? And again, it, you're going to look at somebody and be like, I don't see how I could relate to that man at all. You may not, but he can at least lead you in the Word. Who are the faithful men that you find yourself submitted to in the Word? Younger women, the same question goes for you. Who are the older women that you find yourself submitted to so that they can point you to the Word of God? And then for the older men and women here, are you willing to give any time to the generation who, I think it's safe to say, we can throw accusations at other generations very easily. We can make accusations of a younger generation all day, but that younger generation exists to be taught, as we see in the Word. Are you giving them any of your time and attention so that they can be taught? Do they, need to go th do they need to go through the same school of hard knocks that you needed to go to? Or might God have put you in their proximity to help them avoid those things? Might God have put you in their life? Might God have put you in this church with these other people so that they could live a life more peaceably than you did? You're right. You may have a testimony that is bonkers. But that testimony God has allowed you to cultivate over this time, this miracle that He has led you through to today, that you are a man and woman of God, exists so that that other person wouldn't have to have it either. We are called to disciple one another and to lead one another through the Word as we look forward to this blessed hope. Verse 11 for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. A special note that I came across. This um, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you read the original Greek, it literally reads the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if anybody ever says to you, Scripture never says 
Jesus is God, according to the original Greek, it literally says, the great God, Jesus Christ. It cannot be said more simply, but that's another sermon for another time, but a good note. As we come together, as we have an order in the church, and we have faithful men who lead it, and then as we've established faithful men who lead the church, the faithful men who lead the church ensure that discipleship is happening from top to bottom, and that nobody's being ignored and nobody's choosing to ignore somebody else, that the church is refining itself in the Word. We do these things as we look forward to what Christ is going to do. We see here this future hope, the rapture. As we look forward to the day, we would hear trumpet sound and be taken up with Jesus until He comes back again with the church. We look forward. We stand prepared because we know Jesus is coming. We have this hope. But in this, we are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. And we're not going to continue to read that section again. This salvation and hope should prove the redeemed should actually, I'm sorry, this hope and salvation should lead the redeemed to hold fast and proclaim the faith. Is that if this is true, the salvation and the hope that we have should make it so that it is impossible for us to not want to lead somebody else to the Word. It should make it impossible for us to be comfortable watching our brothers and sisters walk away from the Word, to walk away from the Lord and to walk away from the faith. Can we be honest for a minute? In the world that we live in, it has become so normal for people to begin to renounce their faith that it's just a common post online and it's not unsettling anymore. But if the word is true and the kind of passion we're supposed to have here should exist within us that Paul is describing, we should be disturbed as we see our brothers and sisters who once claimed to follow Jesus turn away to things that we know are unsatisfactory. We should be disturbed when they start to try to apply worldly things to the church and worldly things to the faith because what it means and I don't know if you guys have ever considered this. When brothers and sisters in churches start adding things to the church and to their faith, what it means is that they don't believe Jesus is satisfactory. It means Jesus is, in fact, not enough for them in their own mind. It means they desire other things. Their heart is given to other things. He says to declare these things with authority and let nobody disregard you. Sections of Scripture like this are troubling because it literally flies in the face in everything that we're told to do in all of our jobs and in all of our schools and in all of our fill-in-the-blank. We are told that we are not supposed to throw our opinions and thoughts out to those who live and work around us. And if we do, we will be rebuked by our employers and workplaces and households for doing so. It's true. And I would even go as far to say is that it's especially true for the Christian. Because there are certain agendas that exist in the world that they're absolutely allowed to shove down the throat of everybody else in this world what they think. But God forbid somebody say, this is how we are called to live. God created you for something else. And the world has done, the enemy has done a fantastic job of making us afraid to speak up. As he's done a really good job at making us consider, will I be okay if I lose this job? Will I be okay if I'm ostracized from this situation? Well, when we look at Scripture like this, the believer is given no room to debate the matter. And if we're given no room to debate the matter, it then brings this, and we spoke to this a few weeks ago. There are some churches who would say that end times theology is unimportant. Well, I would argue that faithful believers need to know that Jesus is coming because a faithful believer finds himself between a rock and a hard place quite often. And they need the comfort to know that Jesus is not only a redeemer, but an avenger as well. 
And so here, as we move into this section, it means that you have no room. We are called to speak with authority in a way that nobody can disregard what we say. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I will level with you and say, that is one of the hardest things in the world to do. Because it is, in fact, problematic to consider that I will have no job if I do this. I may lose friends if I do this. I may not be welcome at the Thanksgiving table if I do this. And mind you, I would remind you, you're doing it in truth and in love. Not in truth and pride and arrogance, but in truth and love. But we have to remember the promises of God that He is our provision, that He is our sustainer, that He is our strong tower, that He is our comfort, that He is our everything. Because if I hesitate to be obedient to the Word of God because I'm afraid of what I might lose, it means I have forgotten that Jesus, in fact, holds everything that I need. Do we believe that Jesus, in fact, holds in His hands everything I need? The future I'm looking towards has a, has a we talk about retirement plans. We talk about all the different things we're striving for. We talk about our future, everything else, college plans, everything. Put that on the back burner for a minute. Are those plans going to allow you to, with authority, proclaim the Word of God? Are you going to be a faithful believer in the place that you are working in, in the place that you are striving? Because you have two options then is either start doing it or find a place that you can do it. Because the Christian is absolutely, with no room for debate, called to advocate for the gospel and to advocate for holy living. And it doesn't mean to apply holy living to a sinful world, but it means that we have to evangelize and live with Christ on our sleeve even when it's difficult. And I'd remind you, this might even be a little bit difficult. There is almost no persecution in this country that exists at the level that exists in other countries. As we consider our loss here, but our loss here is insignificant compared to the beatings and lives lost that others are willing to put their lives down for. And I don't want to diminish anybody's suffering, but we have to remember, if God has been faithful to those who are martyred physically, even to the point of death, why wouldn't He be faithful to you? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke them with all authority and let no one disregard you. Now when we read this section, let no one disregard you, it almost reads like a contradiction, right? Because when we read through Scripture, it says that, okay, well, you're going to be hated. Scripture literally says in John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, so if the world's supposed to hate me, what does it mean that they can't disregard me? Some of your translations might say despise me. Well, let's remember what Paul is reminding Titus of here. Yes, Scripture is true. Jesus says that you will be hated because Jesus was hated. We can't avoid that. But Paul, through the letter of Titus, has been encouraging us to excellent life in the pursuit of righteousness. That with everything that is within you, avoid hypocrisy. That you live a holy and righteous life so that your lifestyle would be a testimony all on its own. That as you do exhort and rebuke, you should have the authority of life lived experience to support what it is that you're telling people. Because I don't know about you, but I have heard other people preach certain things, but because I know who they are, I have no interest in hearing what they have to say. And I will admit, pastors are no strangers to this problem. 
But Paul is saying you are called to this kind of lifestyle so that when you do do this, they can see that there is a peace in your life that is irrefutable. Now, mind you, they might try to refute it, but it's dishonest. But they can see that God is with you and God is good. It doesn't mean that they're going to submit to it. But they could at least see that there is truth in the words that you speak. But then here, it might even bring us something somewhere even farther, is that it points to excellence in every side, even in the way that we think and the way that we communicate. Is that not only are we called to live an excellent life in righteousness and in holiness, but we're supposed to communicate in the same way. To be self-controlled and upright in all things, and that automatically includes our speech. Brothers and sisters, if the lifestyle we're living and the way that we're communicating are the reason people despise us, we are not walking in holiness. If the world despises you because you are living humbly and you are living surrendered to the Lord, and you are living surrendered to your spouse and living surrendered to your children, and you are a servant in every aspect of your life, congratulations, you have met the call of Christ and you are bearing your cross with Him. But if the world despises you and disregards you because they see no attempt in your life except to win a conversation, the rebuke that they've received from you, you have failed. This is an exhortation and pride that you might have one step up on the individual, but it's not a loving word that you have displayed to them. And there is some nuance in this, but I'm willing to put a general broad stroke on this. You are called to live in holiness so that you would be despised for the right reasons. You are called to think holy and communicate well and communicate in a godly manner so that you would be despised for the right reasons. Because you know what? When a world that loves their sin hears truth, they don't like it. But it's another thing to be despised because you're being illogical and you're being thoughtless and, you're being, and you have a lack of care. But consider today, as we read through the book of Titus, this is what he's calling the church to live up to and he's calling the church leaders to live up to. Is are you living your life this way so that when you do, both within the church and without the church, communicate in a way that Christ is clearly seen. God works mightily through the efforts of righteous people. He works mightily through the efforts and prayers of a righteous man. That's one of the most convicting sections of Scripture, verses of Scripture for me, is he answers the prayers of righteous men. And I have to ask sometimes, if the Lord's unwilling to answer my prayers, is it because I'm living in some kind of unrighteousness? I have to ask that question. And I'd encourage you, to ask yourself that question. I'm not saying to condemn yourself with that question, but to seriously ask, is the Lord not hearing me because I know that I'm not attempting to live in righteousness in some part of my life? Am I creating chaos everywhere that I go because I am an unrighteous example of Christ in the workplace? Am I smearing His name or am I glorifying His name? Am I keeping people away from church because of the way that I live? Or am I inviting people to church, not literally, but because they know that they are loved by me? Guys, we can have all kinds of bitter thoughts and things said about our coworkers, but I'd challenge you. When, let's say they have desks. Remember, the Lord challenged me with this years ago because I had a set of coworkers that were exceptionally difficult. I remember I'd just complain about them every day. But the Lord said, I want you to pray over them every single day. Now, I couldn't literally pray over them because that'd be weird, right? But what I could do is I could go to work early and stop at every single one of their desks, lay hands on it, and pray for them. And that wasn't easy. 
the first day of praying over these guys' desks was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. It's like, Lord, I don't have anything nice to say right now, but that's what you're calling me to do, so I'm praying. That was pretty much how my prayer went. But as I began to pray for these people, I began to see what it was that God loved within them. That, he is, that they are his creation. And that I can't say, as the word says, I can't say that I love God and hate these people. So brothers and sisters, are you praying for the people that you might despise? And I would encourage you, if you despise somebody, pray for them so the Lord would cultivate a love for them in you. And let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That is you, church. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so now we move into order and stewardship as we bring this to a close. Having asked Titus to establish healthy leadership through sound doctrine, he's encouraged the the church to disciple one another and to strive towards hope, and to communicate in honesty according to the Word. He now says, the stewardship of your lifestyle to be kind and courteous and absent of slander. Now, this is particularly important, and I would say that we are reaching a day in time where this is just as important for us today. This was important because this church could not afford to be accused by Roman authority. The Roman Empire knew about Christians and they viewed them with a strange suspicion. Remember, the churches knew. The Romans didn't know what this was. Nobody knew what this was except for those that were in the church. But what they did know is that they claimed Christ was their king, but they also knew that they were called to be submitted to them. They did know that they were called to be removed from culture and take on a new culture, but these people were also peaceable. So imagine seeing this church come up within your country and within your region, and you have a pretty iron fist rule over them, and you have no idea what to do with these people. They're not looking at them fondly. They are assuming, and people are actually being paid to spread lies about the church, They are assuming that these are going to be people that need to be dealt with in the most hostile fashion. And so he's reminding them, you church, not just for the benefit of one another, but for the benefit of the world that you reside within, you be submissive. Do not provide any reason for the authorities that are over you to look at you any harsher than they already do. Be obedient and be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, but be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. We ourselves used to be like them, but the Lord has called us into a new thing. So I would encourage you, church, we live in a world where we can't ignore 
policies and politics in the world that we live in. However, we can't live in a manner that provokes them to anger either. Scripture calls us to pray for our leadership. Scripture calls us to be submitted to them, to be kind and gentle and to not speak ill of them either. Brothers and sisters, are we living up to that task? It is not an easy one, but it is one that we're absolutely called to do. And he says that these things are good. You and the church are being and will be evaluated. But it will be good for all peoples. You know, it's funny. I came across this scripture and I saw this post the other day. And there's always conspiracy theorists online, right? I don't need to add anything to that. It's just true. If you've been online for two seconds, you've seen them. Is I was watching a pastor throw out this caution. He's like, just so you know, during Pride Month, don't be surprised if the government tries to come in and send people to evaluate your churches. You know, at first glance, that doesn't seem like, oh man, like that makes a whole lot of sense. To be honest with you, if you're living according to the word and there are people who are opposed to you, they're going to be in your churches all the time. I pray to God that we live so according and close to the word that people are in here all the time to have to evaluate whether we're preaching the good news and that we would be found guilty preaching the good news and that they would be converted because we unrelentingly preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, if you live according to the word of God, you will be evaluated and thank God for it because his word does not come back void. We are not called to dodge the evaluation of the world, but we're called to live up to the evaluation of our Father for the good of ourselves. So we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but also so that they might be saved as well. It's a strange thing for the church to live in fear and the evaluation of the government that resides over it. Scripture tells us over and over and over again, and we've seen his examples in history, and we see examples here. It's going to be ridiculed by government. If you're listening online or you're here today and you've been worried about that, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. That is a regular thing that is happening. It's going to happen and it's probably going to get worse. But it does not alter the call of the saint. In season and out of season, you be ready. You be prayed up and you be submitted. And when the day comes that things do flip upside down here, if that's what the Lord has for our country, we will still gather, we will still praise, and we will still pray for our leaders. We will still evangelize with everything that's within us. We will still be the church, because that is what we're called to be. But here, notice this, what Paul actually does call him to address Verses 9-11, through 11, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Paul doesn't say you do something about the government that oversees you, but you, in fact, do something about the person who is within your church trying to cause division within it is that if they're not willing to live peaceably and to speak kindly and to live graciously and to encourage and pray for one another, if they have a problem with everybody all the time and they're just unrelenting in their bitterness and anger, after you have spoken to them two times, Titus, show them to the door. It's interesting. We as pastors have adopted this political correctness idea that we're supposed to speak peaceably all the time. But if you're a leader in the church, you are in fact called to address these issues headlong. And it doesn't say that you're supposed to hide them from the church. And you might ask, well, how do you know we're not supposed to hide it from the church? Well, you're holding a letter written to the church that's supposed to be read aloud to the church. And Paul very regularly addresses the men by name who were divisive within the church. So clearly the church knew who the divisive men were and the church knew who the men were that they had to look out for so that they wouldn't be deceived either. It is for the benefit and the care of the church that the shepherds 
care for and fight away the wolves that are coming after the sheep in the church. And so whether you're here or elsewhere, are your shepherds fighting for you? Do you know that your shepherds are fighting for you? If you are a leader here, are you fighting for the flock or are you avoiding confrontation because it's uncomfortable? If that is you, that is not your call. You fight for them and you let them know that they are loved the way that God loves them. Reject the heretic, the divider. Keep them out of God's church. Because some people do just desire chaos. And then he gives us these final instructions and, and greetings. I send you Artemis and Tychicus to you. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Then I would say that historically we can come to the understanding that this was Paul's final free will destination before he was arrested and thrown in prison. For I have decided to spend winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus to the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that see that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so Paul hits Titus with this hammer right at the beginning, but he continues to encourage and ends with this grace be with you all. And the church hears, you be faithful to devote yourselves to these things so that when needs arise, you can address the needs. And one thing, I got to the end of this book, and I'm excited to be able to say that we're a church who I believe isn't perfect at this, but we've been striving towards these things. I don't remember if I said it last Sunday, but I know the church has come together and been praying over the outreach efforts that we've been doing here, but you guys should know that since we somewhat opened, Dave, where's David? David's in the back there. David can tell you. By the way, David works at Philippians Place. He's the front desk guy, so he sees this even more than I do. It has been non-stop people coming to the church seeking help. We can't get anything done. I'm learning I have to keep my door closed and locked if I want to get anything done. David knows that too. He's got to hide. But what the Lord's done here through your prayers and through your service has made it so that we have actually, within just a couple weeks, been able to provide jobs, been able to provide plans to get people into their homes, been able to help people keep their lights on. You have to know that the church is working, or the Lord is working faithfully through your prayers and through your work. And that I know there are some of you here who are tired of working on this project. You look at the sheetrock, you look at the other stuff, you look at the paint, and you're like, dude, this thing, if this pastor sends out one more invite asking for help, he's going to hear it from me. I know you're tired, I'm tired. I don't want to paint ever again. I know I'm going to have to. We're moving into a house and my wife's going to have me paint, so I can't avoid it. Hey, honey. But your, God is using your efforts to accomplish this. You have to know that there are some people who have been ministered to in the homeless community who have started showing up to church. Been trying to get these people to go to church for months. And we noticed one of them came again on this past Sunday. Because they know that they are loved and God loves them. They're, seeing, they're hearing the gospel every day. And now they want to be a part of a church body who is clearly extending grace to them. And I want to say thank you to you, Calvary Chapel Jacksonville, who have been the faithful extension of care in our city. I know sometimes we go through these books and you're like, man, are we, are we moving in the right direction in any of this at all? Some of you read this and you're like, I know some better people in the church. Well, I know them too. But... God is working in incredible ways. And I'd encourage you, if, if you have any energy and hope within you, be a part of what the Lord's doing. Be a part of somebody else's testimony that they would say that you were an answered prayer for something that they needed in their life. I don't think there's anything that brings more joy than hearing, even though they might not know who you are, but hearing that the Lord used you to answer somebody else's prayer is the greatest privilege in being a believer. That God would use us, that God would use me, the sinner and this foolish man who I used to be, to do something good. I don't deserve to be used at all. And neither do you. 
But because you have been redeemed in the Holy Spirit, He sets you apart and began to sanctify you for a good work. And so, finally, again, thank you. If you're not here and you're watching online, thank you. And I'll tell them again Sunday. So if you hear me say this again Sunday, tough. You're going to have to hear it twice. But thank you. You guys have been a blessing to me as a pastor. You've been a blessing to the leaders here. And I want to thank you for being a church that Paul would be able to say, grace and peace be with you. Or your testimony has been well spoken of in and around the community. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. So, Father, we come before you this evening thankful for the work that you have been doing in us over these past several years, over these past several months and weeks. But, Lord, while we know you are doing a good work, Father, we don't want to settle for this today. Lord, we want to strive to continue to be used by you. Lord, we want to strive to continue to see your miracles and your provision and your faithfulness. Father, we ask that you would continue to do what you're doing, that you would pull more of our church family into acts of service so that, Lord, we would be, Father, a, a church of local missionaries caring for those who need to be cared for here. That, Lord, we would be a reflection of the church in Acts, that as those come, to, come together with real need, that those who have access would be willing to relinquish it so that all would be taken care of. That, Lord, even those who don't have anything in abundance, they would be, no, they would be Father, marked as we see other churches in Scripture, that even though they lacked, they would be willing to serve and give as much as they could, that everybody else would be taken care of. Lord, your, your church is this reflection of not, not selfishness, but selflessness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to cultivate that spirit in us. That, Father, we ask that you would continue to raise up leaders who would reflect this kind of character within the church. That, Lord, we would continue to see people come to you, come to the faith, come to rest in your presence, Father, so that, Lord, we would see more smiling faces with you as we're called home. And we ask all of these things in your name. Amen.